The last five chapters of the book of Judges uh, are not what anyone among us would say to be the most pleasant of reading. They're not uh, what any of us would say would be enjoyable reading, in fact, because in the last five chapters of the book of Judges, we see just how horrible, how horrific everyday life in the period after Joshua's death was for the people of Israel. It was horrible in that way they committed idolatry, and it was horrific in the way the people of Israel treated one another with absolute callous disregard and dehumanizing indifference. The author of Judges wants us to understand these events, these two case studies in Judges 17 through 21. In these chapters, he wants us to understand these events through this statement. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Found first in chapter 17, verse 6, repeated verbatim as the last verse of the whole book in chapter 21, 25, and found in abbreviated form in 18.1 and 19.1, this statement, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That is the theological explanation for what was happening in Israel during this time. There was no king. Not even God was the king of Israel the way he was supposed to be. And in the assertion of the self, self-autonomy and self-rule, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Last week, as we looked at 17 and 18 in the book of Judges, last week we saw that this led to chaos and destruction through idolatry. And this week, as we look at Judges 19, 20, and 21, we see that self-rule leads to dehumanizing and devastating indifference towards one another. Sometimes we have to hear really hard news before we can deeply grasp the good news. Sometimes in order to get a good handle on the grace of God in Jesus Christ, we have to first hear the truth about sin and depravity. We have to first confront really difficult things about ourselves. And so this morning, with full disclosure, let me tell you, this is one of those times where we have to allow, as theologian John Stott once remarked, we have to allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. We have to come through this to know who we are and who we can be. We have to hear this to know the glory of Jesus Christ and the life that is given to us in Him. We find in this passage men and women doing what was right in their own eyes, a work of a darkened heart that led them to be indifferent towards one another. They just didn't care about other people. And what we see by extension then is the need for people to have new hearts as they submit to the real king who is Jesus. So in survey-type fashion, let's step into these last three chapters of the book of Judges. And here we see some of the most disturbing and horrific events in all of Scripture. I'm not going to spend much time with specific details because, quite frankly, specific details in this passage are nauseating. 
For the most part, God is silent. As once again, we find a Levite doing what is right in his own eyes. This anonymous Levite, we're told, had a concubine. And in this whole passage, both the Levite and the concubine are uh, left unnamed, probably to accentuate the dehumanized level of each. This poor concubine, the Levite's second-class wife, is the victim of this dehumanization. She is seen and treated as less than human by the Levite and by others. And the Levite himself, by the very actions that he takes, reveals that he lacks humanity. At a very basic level, he lacks that which he was created to have. He himself is dehumanized. We're told in this passage that the concubine was unfaithful to the Levite, unfaithful in her leaving him and returning to her father. And in the passage of Scripture, it appears as though the Levite seemingly cared absolutely little that she was gone. Until, that is, he either got lonely or his first wife somehow displeased him. It wasn't until four months after his concubine had left that he went to fetch her at her father's house. He went to fetch his concubine, a woman whom he treats as property, as a thing, as an object to be possessed, not as a wife to be loved as God would desire. And after several days with his father-in-law, this Levite and his concubine leave Bethlehem to return to their home in Ephraim. But they began their journey late in the day, and it was late in the day when they came to Jabus. As the sun was setting, Jabus is the Canaanite-controlled city that we would call Jerusalem. Not wanting to spend the night among the Canaanites, the traveling couple go on to the Bethlehemite city of Gebeah. And as the Levite and the concubine are taken into the home of an elderly man living in the city, the narrative here takes a very dark turn. And I'm not going to go into great detail here. I simply am going to leave it with a quote from commentator David Daniel Block when he says, The scene described in verses 22 through 26 is among the most grotesque and sickening in the book, if not in the entirety of Scripture. Wicked men of Gebeah do what is right in their own eyes, and the Levite did what was right in his own eyes. And as a result, this unnamed, dehumanized concubine spent the night in what we can only imagine as her worst nightmare, dehumanized by indifferent men and violated to the point of death. In a scene that is intentionally reminiscent of the events within the city of Sodom from Genesis chapter 19, the darkness in the hearts of these men, darkness in the heart of Israel, is revealed. The Levite, the elderly man, and the perpetrators of violence, shown to be indifferent with callous disregard toward anyone outside of themselves. And about this connection to Sodom, Tim Keller comments, the parallel between the pagan city and Israelite Gebeah carries an obvious message. Here are the people of God. They are no better than the Canaanites and pagan nations who had received none of these blessings. They have become like Sodom. You see, in rejecting the right, true king, Yahweh, and in doing what was right in their own eyes, the people of Israel had become like the Canaanites. We saw that in their idolatry last week, and we see that in this passage of Scripture from Judges they have become like the Canaanites with coarse indifference toward others, marking their relationships. 
In the morning, the Levite arose safe. His body was sound. And wanting to resume his journey home, he stepped over the broken and we can imagine bleeding body of his concubine. Indifferent to her pain and to her suffering, he simply says to her, get up, let's go home. And when he arrived home, he found the young woman dead. And so, treating her body like an animal and not with dignity that God would desire, he cut her into pieces as a show of his outrage. And the Levites sent the pieces of this poor woman's body out to all the tribes of Israel as a call to action, a call to share his outrage, a call to seek vengeance. In chapter 20 of our passage for this morning, a council was held in which the Levite gave his spin on the events. He gave his version of the events, and he cast himself as the aggrieved victim. He removes his part of the blame, all while calling the tribes of Israel to unite for what he would call justice. But what happens is actually not an attempt at justice at all, but rather an attempt at genocide. As the dark heart of men and women seeking to do that which was right in their eyes led them to indifference and callous disregard. Like no other time in the book of Judges, the people of Israel are united together against a common foe. It just so happens that the common foe is a city from within the tribe of Benjamin. And when the united tribes challenge the tribe of Benjamin with justice over Gebeah, Benjamin seeks to protect its own and not offer justice. And so as the book of Judges comes to a close, there is civil war within the 12 tribes of Israel. Civil war breaks out, most likely, I think, as God's judgment upon Benjamin, God's judgment upon all of Israel. Whereas before, the oppressors of Israel that God had used as judgment were external. Here, they are internal. And over a series of battles, Benjamin was defeated. Gebeah, the city, destroyed. And the people of Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, reduced to 600 men. And suddenly here, at the end of chapter 20, chapter 21 begins, suddenly here, realization dawns upon the people of Israel. What was happening? They now become concerned that the tribe of Benjamin would be wiped off the face of the earth and cease to exist. In waging war against the tribe of Benjamin, the men of Israel had pledged that they would cut off the men of Benjamin from their daughters. They would not allow for intermarriage, leaving Benjamin without wives and thus unable to have children. But here, in a moment of clarity, at the end of chapter 20, as chapter 21 begins, they realize it won't do for one of the 12 tribes of Israel to simply not exist anymore. But what to do? In order to save face and protect their own honor so they would not have to violate their vow and their callous indifference to fellow Israelites, they send an armed force to destroy another Israelite city. Jabesh Gilead, and to kidnap the young unmarried women, to force them into marriage with the tribe of Benjamin. There was a problem, however, they didn't kidnap enough women. And so then Benjamin was given permission to ambush and kidnap young women in the midst of a religious celebration. Again, an expression of indifference and disregard for another that comes out of doing what is right in our own eyes. And so we don't miss the point. 
The author of Judges ends this case study. He ends the epilogue. He ends the entirety of the book with this explanation and this indictment. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Indifference, callous disregard, and dehumanization were all results as the people of Israel reveal a heart of darkness. And that is the dark heart of the story. The heart darkened by indifference. In doing that which was right in their own eyes, the Levite, the men of Gibeah, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, they were indifferent to anything or to anyone that might have gotten in their way of accomplishing that which they would declare was right in their own eyes. To the point that they couldn't see that there was no difference between what happened to the concubine in the city of Gibeah and what happened to the women of Jabesh-Gilead and what happened to the young ladies at Shiloh. They couldn't see that because of their callous indifference, because they were doing what was right in their own eyes. That leads to dehumanization of others and of ourselves. It leads ultimately to death. Indifference is callous disregard for the being of another. Indifference is being so bound up with who we are and in what we want and in what we feel that we have nothing left for the other. Where, in the words of Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel, the other is reduced to an abstraction. Not even a real person anymore, simply a thing for us to use. Indifference is the woman in the stall next to Elaine Bennis who can't spare a square. Indifference is George Costanza trampling elderly women and children to escape a supposed fire. Indifference is found in shoppers stepping over the bleeding body of LaShonda Calloway in an aisle of a convenience store in Wichita, Kansas. She died while they bought their Cheetos. Indifference is found as David Sharp slowly froze to death 984 feet from the top of Mount Everest, out of oxygen, passed by 40 other climbers who were so concerned with the achievement of their goal that they couldn't be bothered to share a bit of air with a dying man. Indifference is found in the actions of men and women when a car crashed into a Starbucks near Hollywood in January of 1999. One of the witnesses noted, nobody's worried about people being hurt, they're just upset they couldn't get their coffee. If indifference is a behavior that is manifested out of our heart, that is manifested out of who we are. It is described, the, the heart that manifests in indifference is described by Philip Zimbardo in his book, The Lucifer Effect, as the sin of the wolf. Commenting on a traditional sin called cupiditas, Zimbardo writes, The sins that spring from that root are the most extreme sins of the wolf, the spiritual condition of having an inner black hole so deep within oneself that no amount of power or money can ever fill it. Whatever exists outside of oneself has worth only as it can be exploited by or taken into one's self. For the Levite, it was the concubine. For the men of Gebeah, it was the concubine. For the tribe of Israel, it was Gebeah and Benjamin and then the women of Jabesh-Gilead. Who is capable of such things? Who is capable 
of this dehumanizing indifference? Who is really capable of this callous disregard of others? The honest answer is chilling. The honest answer is that all of us are capable of callous disregard and indifference. All of us are capable of dehumanizing another, of treating them as abstractions only to be exploited by ourselves. Newsweek author Sharon Begley wrote before 9-11. In their search for the nature and roots of evil, scholars from fields as diverse as sociology, psychology, philosophy, and theology are reaching a chilling conclusion. Most people do have the capacity for horrific evil, they say. The traits of temperament and character from which evil springs are as common as flies on carrion. Who is capable of such evil as that which we see in the callous indifference and dehumanizing disregard found in Judges 19 through 21? Every single one of us. Especially if we seek to be our own king. Especially if we seek to rule our own lives. Especially if we seek to do that which is right in our own eyes. While we may not murder and kill, hear this. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's true, we may not murder, we may not kill, but how many times have we murdered with our minds? Jesus' expansion of the law in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, reflects, I think, the heart of the matter, a heart of indifference and dehumanizing sin of the wolf. And it's true, we may not objectify men and women and treat them as objects physically, at least not to the extent that we find here in Judges 19 through 21. We hear Jesus say again, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Doesn't this reflect the indifference and dehumanizing effect that stems from doing what is right in our own eyes? One of the heartbreaking realities of Judges chapter 19 through 21 is that these were a people who had the law. These were a people who knew who God was, but in their active rejection, they abandoned the law. They could not keep the law. And so we need to hear the words of Jesus. It wasn't just their deeds that were evil. It's not just our deeds that are evil. It is our hearts. And so it isn't just that our behavior must be corrected, but our being must be corrected first, point blank, we need new hearts. So Jesus is getting that in Mark chapter 7. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. As long as we are the kings of our own hearts, as long as we do what is right in our own eyes, our hearts are going to be filled with what God will say is evil. We will become wolves as our behavior reflects our being. The heart is at the heart of the matter, and we need new hearts. 
The sin of the wolf is a spiritual condition that takes root in our hearts at the very center of our being. And so we need a new heart. Praise be to God that he is not indifferent to us. And praise be to God that he gives to us exactly what we need. We need a king who can give us not a new law but a new heart. We need a king who can make us new in who we are at an ontological level of being so that what we do is different. We need to be human so that we may humanize others, and only Jesus can do that for us. This, praise be to God, is exactly what Jesus desires to do in us, desires to do for us, desires to do to us. And praise be to God, Jesus is not indifferent to us. God desired to be the king for his people, Israel. Under his rule and his reign, Israel would be who they had been called to be, a light drawing many nations to God. God still desires to be the king for his people, and now entrance into God's kingdom comes through Jesus who fulfills the promises God had made. I find it so amazing, amazingly graceful that in the pages of the Old Testament, God promised to give to his people the very thing that they needed. For example, in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, we hear God speak through the prophet Ezekiel. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And listen, God says this, I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God, wanting to give to those people who need new hearts the very thing that they need. The good news of the gospel is that God has offered to do and will do for us that which we need to be made right with him and with ourselves in our being and in our doing. We need new hearts. And God has said in Jesus Christ, I will give you a new heart. In Jesus, St. Paul writes, we are new creations. We're brand new. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Therefore, if any is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God. Dealing with passages from Scripture, such as Judges 19 through 21, reveals the depth of sin and reveals the glory of Christ. It reveals how deep we are, and it reveals how great our God is. That is why we have to confront these things, so that it can upset us in our security, and so it can bring into us this equilibrium that we may seek Jesus. Jesus lived a perfect life. He imputes his righteousness upon all who believe. Jesus died for the sins of the world and justifies all who would believe. Jesus rose in conquest over death and gives new life to all who would believe. And through Jesus, the Holy Spirit is poured out on all who believe so that they may be God's people, truly human and truly humanizing. The bad news is that we are sinners. And we seek to rule over ourselves and do that which is right in our own eyes, which leads to indifference and dehumanizing. The bad news is that we really are worse than we ever want to admit. 
But the good news is that we are loved far more than we ever thought possible. And that in Jesus, we can be made new and do new things. Only in Jesus do we find that which we need, the true king who makes us new. Only in Jesus and by Jesus can we put to death the wolf that resides within. And only in Jesus can we be made new, given new hearts, and become truly human as we were made to be. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we